Hello, and welcome to The Jared White Show, a weekly podcast where we gather to celebrate the best of internet culture, advocate for an open web, revel in geek fandom, and discover what it means to be a creator of integrity in 2020 and beyond. This is episode 47, recorded January 14th, 2020. We got a ton of topics to go into today, a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. So as Philly D would say, let's just jump right into it. Today's top topic, Twitter. Twitter will soon let you control who replies to your tweets. So uh, the CES just recently happened in Las Vegas, the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, and there was a uh, presentation from Twitter. Suzanne Z uh, gave a presentation around some changes coming to the social network. Z said that Twitter will give four options to you in this upcoming update to the social network. Four options to uh, limit replies at different levels. So here are the new settings. Here are the new settings that will be available to you when uh, this update rolls out. Uh, So the first setting will be global. All folks can reply to a tweet. Uh, So this is, is of course, how it works currently. Uh, But then the next setting is group, people you follow and mention. So, uh, so anyone uh, you're following or anyone you mention in the tweet, uh, those people will be able to reply to your tweet. And then the third option will be panel, people you specifically mention in a tweet. So this, this one is very interesting to me. Uh, I'll, I'll go into my thoughts on all of these shortly, uh, but this panel one is interesting. And then the fourth option is statement, no replies. So your tweet will just simply stand alone as its own statement, and no replies will be allowed. So uh, Twitter is is offering these granular controls as sort of a way to change the, the nature of conversation on Twitter. Uh, as you can imagine, um, so much of the of the sort of uh, negative, harsh rhetoric and vitriol and so forth happens in in these tweet threads that come out of somebody saying something, you know, perceived as controversial or or fake news or you know whatever whatever the the perceived uh, injustice is from from a statement. Uh, so uh, so this is a way to to control that that style of conversation. Um, you know, there, there is a way right now, if, if you look through replies to a tweet, you do have the option to hide replies if you feel like they're irrelevant or offensive or whatever. Obviously, you can report tweets if it's, uh, you know, falls under Twitter's um, you know, guidelines of what's not allowed on the network, if it's hate speech or whatnot. Um, but, you know, you don't really have control over what people are saying by and large in response to something you post. Uh, I I feel like this is <laughs> this is one of those things where uh, some people some people are going to appreciate having these options and some people are going to be upset about it because they feel like they'll be left out of a conversation perhaps. Um, but for me, I've always wondered why social networks 
have haven't just had these options right out of the gate. I remember years ago when I was still on Facebook, it, it I just couldn't understand why I didn't have the option to close comments, you know, to, to, you can do it on a blog. It's easy to do on a blog. In fact, some blogs don't even have comments at all anymore. You know, close the comments uh, after a time or never have them in the first place. You know, I couldn't understand why I wasn't able to control that on Facebook. You know, if I posted something that I knew some people wouldn't like, but I just didn't want to get into a big argument and, you know, have all this stuff, you know, stuck onto my profile from people that, or, you know, calling me an idiot or whatever. Like, I, did, I didn't understand why I couldn't just say, I don't want comments on this post. So that's essentially what Twitter's going to be offering, the ability to say, I don't want any replies, or I only want replies from people I follow or mention, so I, you know, I kind of know the, <laughs> I know the audience that will be able to react to what I'm saying. Uh, this panel option is specifically very interesting because it essentially means that you can start a dialogue with you know one, two, three other people, whatever, and and just have a dialogue with those people. And uh, I think this will be very interesting for for journalists, for for people in the news who uh, you know want to have sort of a global conversation and have that get posted out to everybody, but not. Uh, have that conversation sort of broken up and and interfered with by uh, other random people. I, I'm sure this option came right out of a <laughs> feature request from Jack because a while back, Jack and Kara Swisher uh, were trying to have a conversation, uh, and uh, and there were some real usability issues with that because, uh, you know, different replies from Jack and Kara were, were out of order and, and it was kind of hard to follow, you know, what was said in response to what and uh, people were interjecting comments and that got mixed up in there. And so, you know, uh, it, it was kind of a mess. And Jack sort of admitted after the end of it, like, you know, we have some work to do on our usability here with these sort of two-way conversations on Twitter. So, so this panel option will will really address that. Um, the group option is interesting, as I mentioned, because that way uh, you can get replies from people, but it'll essentially be a, an audience that you handpick because uh, it's you know just the people you follow or specifically mention in a tweet. Probably the most controversial option here will be that statement option. So the idea that somebody can just say something and get no replies. Uh, so, you know, if it's Trump, it's, if it's, you know, somebody peddling fake news or, or whatever, you know, they can just post whatever they want and, and nobody can reply and call them out on, on their BS. Um, so, you know, again, it's one of these things where a lot of people are going to be upset about, you know, feeling like they're getting excluded, feeling like, um, you know, people who have amassed a large audience can just throw out whatever they want and say whatever they want without uh, having to address the fallout. Uh, but just on a on a basic level here, again, like I have never understood why I, as the quote unquote content creator, posting something on a service, why can't I control how my content is interacted with? You know, you can do it on YouTube. You can post a video and not allow comments. That's been a thing for a long time. Uh, you know, if I have my own blog with comments, I can easily control if somebody can comment or not 
to a particular post. Uh, this has been a thing for, for so long in other settings, and I've just never understood why it, it's sort of assumed that, oh, because this is something called a social network, I have no control over if somebody can reply to something I post. I have no say in what sort of conversation will unfold after I post something. Uh, that's always seemed bonkers to me. Uh, so, you know, so I understand the concerns. I understand some of the, the consternation around, uh, you know, just folks peddling fake news and inaccurate statements and, and missing out on, on that uh, ability to, to rebut it. But, uh, but from my standpoint, this is, you know, this is like the bare minimum <laughs> far too late. Uh, I, I would have liked to see this sort of control baked into the platform pretty much from day one. Um, but, uh, you know, here it is, they're, they're working on it. It's rolling out later this year and, uh, and I like it. I like, I like this, this, uh, this new functionality a whole lot. Uh, and particularly that panel one, I, I look forward to, uh, these panel conversations, uh, you know, a journalist and a, and a public figure of some sort, uh, that sort of thing, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a, a group of researchers discussing some new bit of news or some something that they want to um, get out to the public, having that panel discussion. Uh, I, I really look forward to how Twitter can evolve in, in healthy ways uh, through having these options. Um, but you may feel different. You may have a different take on it. So uh, let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can, of course, use Twitter to let me know. Uh, tweet me at Jared C. White. You can also go to jaredwhite.com and send me a message. And please let me know. If you, if you want your response uh, read out on the show, let me know. I'll be happy to, to feature your comments here on the show in a future episode. So that's our top topic for the day. I have one little bonus topic here. Uh, I, uh, I got a cool link from somebody on Mastodon. We are talking about a photo I'd taken of the Broadway Bridge here in Portland. Uh, and Photo Rat, as he's called on Mastodon, uh, sent me this cool link to a YouTube video all about Bridgetown, which is a nickname for Portland. Uh, all about all of the bridges here in the Portland area uh, crossing the Willamette River. Uh, it was a fun little documentary, had interesting information about all the different bridges here. Uh, it's one of the things I love most about Portland. Uh, in fact, it was pretty much the only thing I remembered from my childhood. I, I did take a, a train trip as a child through uh, the Pacific Northwest, through Portland, Oregon, on the Amtrak line. And, uh, and so uh, on our brief stop in Portland, uh, pretty much the only thing I remembered was the Fremont Bridge, the iconic arch bridge here. Uh, and I, I remembered that you know, through, through many years, through, through many, many years of not visiting Portland again, I always had that scene of the river and the bridge sort of seared into my consciousness. Uh, so yeah, uh, if you're at all interested in bridges, if you are interested in learning more about the Portland area and, uh, and these uh, vital pieces of infrastructure for transit here, uh, check out that link. With that out of the way, on to the link segment. So much to talk about here, so I'm going to try to breeze through this as quickly as I can, uh, but uh, just so much interesting stuff going on. 
Uh, first off, um, just in the last week or so, a couple of milestones for Apple fans. Uh, the 13th anniversary of when Steve Jobs unveiled the original iPhone. So, of course, back in uh, 2007, uh, Steve Jobs unveiled the the long-awaited, the much-anticipated, some were calling it the Jesus phone, the, the long-awaited iPhone. And the jackhammers and construction folks are at it again outside. <sighs> when is this ever going to end? It's always when I re- want to record an episode. Anyway, um, hope you can't hear that too, too much there. Um, Anyway, yeah, so 13 years ago, uh, the iPhone came out, and uh, I remember that time. I remember I'd actually been avoiding getting a smartphone for quite a while. I was just using one of the little Nokia flip phones, or actually, I guess it was just like a just like a little pill phone. <laughs> Hardly did anything. Uh, and I was avoiding getting a fancy new phone at that time because I just knew Apple was cooking up something awesome, and I couldn't wait to see it. Uh, so when the iPhone came out, I got it, and despite the really slow internet speeds on that first iPhone, uh, I, I absolutely loved it. It was such a great experience, and uh, history was made. It, it's hard to believe, really, that it's only been 13 years. I mean, 13 years in the in the grand scheme of things is not that long of a time, but but it's just hard to even imagine what what life is like <laughs> when you don't have a smartphone internet connected device in your pocket. Uh, so that's milestone one. Milestone two is uh, another little Apple device, another diminutive gadget from Apple, uh, 15 year anniversary. And it is the Mac mini. The little Mac that could. <laughs> There's a link in the show notes here, uh, a little bit about the history of that. Uh, yeah, I remember, I remember that moment as well, the Mac Mini. Uh, a lot of people have been clamoring for some kind of little Mac box. You know, if you wanted something that, that wasn't an iMac with a built-in screen, if you wanted something inexpensive, if you wanted something small, if you didn't need all the extra power and expansion capabilities of you know, the Power Mac or the, the Mac Pro or, uh, you know, something along those lines. Uh, what, what could you get? What, what would be available? What would be, um, what would be that option? And uh, the Mac Mini was the answer to that question. Uh, it was, uh, what was the acronym? B, B-Y-O-K-M. Bring your own keyboard, mouse, uh, I guess monitors in there or display. Anyway, there's some kind of acronym where, you know, the joke was, you know, you just get the box and that's it. So you need to supply your own keyboard, supply your own mouse or trackpad, supply your own display. But, you know, once you get those and you plug them in, whatever they are, don't, they don't even have to be from Apple. You could get, you know, other peripherals, but you just get those things and plug it into this little box and you have a Mac, which is pretty cool. Unfortunately, the history of the Mac Mini is pretty storied. Uh, it's it's gone through a lot of uh, ups and downs, <laughs> and uh, there was a time not so long ago, and everyone wondered if the product was uh, just end of life, soon to be discontinued, because it seemed like Apple didn't have any interest in updating it. Uh, but they did finally do an update uh, a year year and a half ago, maybe. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a major improvement to the Mac mini and, uh, it's a cool little computer. 
uh, I was actually talking about it in the last episode as a possible option for folks that want to uh, upgrade to a, a new Mac but uh, don't want to spend a lot of money. Uh, it's a really interesting option. All right, a couple more bits of Apple news before we go on to other things. Um, it's uh, said that uh, Apple's TV app will be coming out soon, or at least some point later this year, hopefully soon, uh, to uh, Sony and Vizio smart TVs. I uh, recently got a Vizio 4K TV. I think it's in the what they call the quantum line. Um, and, uh, I've, I've been quite happy with it, uh, in terms of the picture quality. It really is a nice looking display. I've not been so happy about the software. The, the, the smart TV software it comes with is, is kind of sluggish and clunky. And I've, I've really had some, some bugginess around, uh, some of the connectivity, like, uh, both, both AirPlay and Chromecast features have been kind of hit or miss for me. Um, in fact, when I first got it, it didn't even have the AirPlay support that was promised for some weird reason. Vizio rolled out their AirPlay support sort of in stages and different models got that support at different times. So I, I bought it fully expecting that they had AirPlay support now, which was important to me and it didn't, which was very frustrating. Uh, but it finally came out. And then, like I said, it's been a bit buggy. So I don't know. I don't know if this new Apple TV app for Vizio will, will really work as advertised. But if so, uh, that will be that will be really great because I'm, I'm not only watching a lot of content from Apple directly, but I'm starting to use the channels feature. Uh, for instance, I subscribe to CBS All Access through the Apple TV app. So I'm hoping I'll be able to access that directly in the, in the TV app um, on, the, on the Vizio once that rolls out. But really seems like this is a big strategy for Apple to get their TV app on, on all the things in all the places. And uh, it's kind of funny because originally, <laughs> originally the line from Apple around TV was, the future of TVs is apps. And it's kind of ending up now that the future of TV is an app, <laughs> the TV app from Apple. Yeah, that's what they're kind of putting all the energy into at this point. So, uh, so we'll see how that goes. And lastly here, uh, Bridge, the, the company that uh, a lot of folks know for their, their MacBook-like keyboards that you can attach to an iPad. Uh, they, they also make keyboard accessories for some other platforms like Microsoft Surface tablets. Uh, but they're coming out soon with the Bridge Pro Plus, which not only gives you a keyboard, but also gives you a trackpad. So when you connect this, this you know, bottom platform with the keyboard and the trackpad, when you connect that with, with the special hinges to your iPad Pro, uh, you effectively have what looks like a Mac laptop. You have a keyboard and a trackpad. And the trackpad will be using the new accessibility features in iPadOS that gives you essentially a pointer on screen that you can move around and you can, you know, click things. And you can even set it so that a, you know, a context click, like a secondary click, brings up, you know, context menus whenever those are available, uh, which, you know, normally when you're using the touch screen, you, you like hold down for a second and it pops up that little menu. Uh, you can kind of simulate uh, doing that sort of thing through uh, those accessibility features. So, um, so this, <sighs> I, I I don't want to make a lot of people mad, <laughs> but I guess I'll just come out and say it. 
I got a bridge, uh, you know, obviously not the one with the trackpad because it's not out yet, but I got just the regular keyboard one. And I really tried to like it. I really tried to use it and, and keep an open mind about it uh, with using it with my iPad Pro 12.9 inch. Uh, and I don't like it. I, I'm sorry, folks. I don't like it at all. I mean, the, the hardware is fine. It's a, it's a fine keyboard. It's, I, I don't have any real complaints about you know, the build quality of it per se, but, but the whole idea of it, the whole concept of it, the, the usage of it, I don't care for at all. Uh, when I use my iPad, it's, it's essentially doing one of two things. It's serving as a, sort of a, a mini screen that is set up next to whatever I'm doing. Like, you know, maybe I'm in the kitchen or maybe I'm using my, my Mac to do some programming and I want to watch some videos on the side or whatever. Uh, so in all those cases, I, I just have my iPad in a stand and I, and you know, I just have the tablet in a stand. So obviously that's not a context where I can use the bridge at all. Um, and then when I do want to use it a lot with a keyboard and, and, you know, have, have the iPad be my main machine and on the go and bring it around in places, I want it protected with a case. I want it in a nice sturdy case that's going to protect it where I won't worry about if I, you know, God forbid, dropped it on the sidewalk, you know, I'd want to have it as protected as possible. Uh, so that's why, you know, I've, I always have put my iPad in some kind of case. And for a while, I was doing this sort of funny thing where I had the iPad in a case and I would bring my Apple Magic Keyboard along and sort of create this little uh, Magic Keyboard sandwich where the, the case would sort of wrap around both the iPad and the Magic Keyboard. And, and that actually kind of worked because the, the width of the Magic Keyboard is almost identical to the the length of the 12.9 inch iPad Pro. Uh, but more recently, I've been using the, uh, what was it called? The Logitech Slim Folio Pro, something like that. It's Logitech's special keyboard case for the iPad Pro. And yes, I know it's, it's kind of ugly looking because it's just this dark gray color. And yes, it's a little bit bulky and a little bit heavy, uh, but the keyboard is really great. Uh, and the case is super protective. I feel like the iPad is, is really well protected. And I can just pick up that thing. It has a, has a nice little uh, magnetic loop to go around where the Apple Pencil sits so that the Apple Pencil is protected and won't fall into the street or whatever. And I can just bring that with me anywhere. I can just pick it up and go. I can go on a walk. I can bop around town. I can just bring my iPad with me in this special Logitech keyboard case along with the Apple Pencil. And everything is completely protected. I can't do that at all with the bridge. So the bridge is a product to serve a purpose I just don't need. I just don't need this this sort of use case of, oh, I'm going to use my iPad, but it's going to be kind of you know at a desk or in my lap and I don't need any protection and I just want the iPad and a keyboard and they're going to be connected and it's going to look kind of like a laptop. I, I don't need that. I don't ever really need that use case. I use my iPad in very different ways in a different contexts. So, so the bridge products aren't for me, but if this is something you're interested in, if you've been wanting a keyboard and trackpad combo that you can connect to the iPad and, and be able to fold it up and unfold it and have it look basically like a MacBook laptop design, uh, check that out. You might find that interesting. All right, got a couple links here related to Google. Uh, Google has had to add some functionality to Android in the EU. 
based on rulings that uh, require Google to offer choice in, the, in terms of what your default search engine is. Um, so they've been doing this kind of weird auction thing. I don't quite understand how this works, but uh, apparently different companies have been bidding to, to get their choices up top for, uh, for when folks are prompted to pick their search engine of choice. And uh, DuckDuckGo has come out on top pretty much anywhere. So, so all over Europe, starting March 1st, uh, you will be able to, in Europe, uh, on your Android device, when you first set it up, you'll be able to pick your search provider of choice. And uh, DuckDuckGo will be right there up top. So that's pretty cool. DuckDuckGo is my search engine of choice. I use it all the time. I rarely switch over to Google. I only do it when I feel like DuckDuckGo isn't providing uh, the, the, the most search options for me. Uh, so this is really cool. And if you're interested more generally in just quitting Google across the board and finding alternative services for a lot of what Google provides, uh, there's a cool article. Uh, check out the link in the show notes. Kyle Pira has written an article all about uh, quitting Google and all the different uh, alternatives available and so, um, so that was really informative. You might be interested in, in looking through that and uh, finding some ways you can reduce your reliance on Google yourself. This next link's about a topic I don't have a lot of experience in, VR. I have not used a VR headset myself. I don't have a lot of experience with, uh, with all the new VR stuff coming out, even though it all looks very cool and interesting. Um, but uh, Panasonic... Panasonic is working on a new design for uh, VR headsets with these sort of uh, goggle, new eyeglasses kind of uh, designed to them. Uh, and I thought these looked really cool. I don't know if these are going to be more usable or more practical over the long term um, compared with something like the Oculus. But, uh, but just the way these look are pretty cool, and I can't say that about any other VR headset I've seen. They, all the VR headsets I've seen all look pretty ugly, and it's, but it's one of those things where, you know, it, once you, when you're using it, you know, you probably don't care what you look like because you're, you know, playing games at your game console or whatever, and if you look like a total dork with this giant VR headset on, you know, so what? But, <laughs> um, but, but these uh, Panasonic goggle kind of... Uh, uh, eyeglasses here. Uh, it's it's pretty cool looking actually, and they come in different colors. And um, it, it's actually reminiscent of uh, a movie poster I love, uh, the movie Thief, made back in 1981. Great soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Um, but uh, but that movie poster, uh, you know, the the guys wearing goggles because uh, the kind of work he does is to uh, break into uh, safes, and so he you know is using. Uh, a blowtorch and all that sort of thing and needs protective eye gear. And uh, so so as soon as I saw these Panasonic goggles, it reminded me of that movie poster. Anyway, I hope this is a, a step forward in trying to do something design-wise to make VR headsets more attractive. Speaking of new designs, something really crazy has happened. Motorola is bringing back the Razer. R-A-Z-R, all uppercase. Uh, before, before the era of the iPhone, uh, one, of the, one of the hot phones that was out on the market for a while was the original Motorola Razr. It was this extremely thin design flip phone with, uh, 
with, with quite an out, outlandish sort of uh, futuristic uh, cyberpunk kind of design to it. And um, they're they're bringing it back, but they're bringing it back in a different sort of way. They're they're using this new foldable screen technology that we're starting to see more and more. Um, but they're a- applying it to this sort of iconic flip phone design. And I have to say, uh, I, I'm not on the market for foldable phones. I, I'm the, the jury is out, in my opinion, over whether that will ever really, truly take off in a mainstream sense. But if I were to get a foldable phone, I would love this design. I much prefer having this vertical flip design for a foldable phone than the sort of, you know, oh, it opens up horizontally, kind of like a book. Uh, and then you have a little tablet in your hands. Like, that design has n- no appeal to me whatsoever. You know, I've seen the, the Samsung flip phone. I've seen some of the other ones that are starting to come out. Uh, and they all look completely goofy to me. I don't know why anyone would want those. Um, but this foldable Motorola Razor that they're showing off, uh, and there's a, there's a really nice overview video in the show notes, all about that. Um, I like it. I like this design. I, I, I can't say I, I would necessarily approve of, of Apple doing like an iPhone take on this kind of design, um, but, but I really do like it. I, I like the idea of having, you know, a whole lot more vertical space when it's completely open and, you know, maybe having some applications where there are various controls on the bottom half and and you know display stuff going on on the top half and it's just it's a very interesting design uh and and the retro aspects of it are interesting so um so let's keep an eye on this let's keep an eye on on how motorola does with this and if it seems to sort of make make some waves in the in the phone landscape I got a couple design-related links here. Uh, Smashing Magazine did an interesting uh, expose on uh, what's been called brutalist web design. Uh, this this trend of of creating websites that are, by and large, very stripped down, very minimalist. Uh, in some cases, intentionally ugly and in sort of stark and sharp contrast, and and you know very very bold in your face geometric shapes and so forth um and and the term brutalist kind of takes its cue from the the movement of brutalist architecture uh and and the actual word brutalist isn't referring so much as you know something that's like a brute but uh actually refers to the original french term for building with concrete uh so you know if if you've ever been in a city where you see you know, a large concrete building with very stark geometric shapes that, you know, are cl- is clearly something that was built in the 60s or 70s. Uh, it's, it's part of that, that brutalist movement in architecture. <clears throat> uh, sometimes it's called the international style because the idea is that the, the design is, is so minimalist that it doesn't have any uh, influence from any particular part of the world. It's it's something that you could build anywhere in the world, and it's just a completely global sort of design. Anyway, there was that whole movement in architecture back in the day, um, but now there's a movement in web design to do this sort of very stripped down, very stark, very uh, 
you know, bare metal sort of approach. In some aspects, it's it's like using, you know, whatever the default font is in the browser, like Times New Roman, and using default link colors and just having, you know, black text on white or gray and that sort of thing. So um, I'm not necessarily saying I like brutalist web design, um, but I, I kind of approve of what they're trying to do in some ways. Uh, and I like this idea that uh, websites should be simpler, should be faster to load, should have fewer whiz-bang features, and content should be at the forefront instead of you know, fancy-pants design stuff. Uh, so anyway, there, there's aspects of this movement I admire, even if I myself don't see uh, brutalist design becoming that, that much of a mainstream approach. Final design link here is uh, Roland, a few years ago, did a challenge. They challenged uh, designers across the world to visualize the piano of the future. They told them to tear up the rule book and try to design a grand piano in, in, in an entirely new way because you know piano design has changed so little over the decades or even centuries. Uh, so uh, they finally picked a winner. Uh, Jong Chan Kim did what he called the facet grand piano design, and he was awarded the grand prize for this challenge. Uh, and uh, it's it's <laughs> it, it kind of uh, a little bit on the brutalist theme here. Uh, it, this is also a very stripped down, very geometric, very stark kind of design. Uh, and some people are are calling this the cyber truck of pianos uh, because the the angles and the stark design uh, are is somewhat reminiscent of the new cyber truck that Tesla's been showing off, which is a really crazy <laughs> crazy looking uh, truck design. Uh, so this is the cyber truck of pianos, the facet grand piano from Roland. Uh, it's it's not a real product per se. I don't think they're planning to do any sort of mass market. Uh, manufacturing of this design, but it's very interesting. I enjoyed looking at the video and learning about it. And uh, the end of the link segment here, last thing. Uh, human body temperature has apparently been dropping over time. Uh, it's a link about uh, some, some research into the, the historical trends of the average body temperature. And apparently that 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit that we all learned as kids, that we all know, uh, apparently that's not entirely true. Um, apparently over time, and certainly in recent years, uh, the average body temperature has actually been dropping. And I think it's now, it's now something like uh, 97.9 or something. Uh, so there, there could be any number of reasons for this, but um, most likely it's because so many people are, uh, are sitting and not doing a lot of strenuous activity outdoors, per se. Uh, so our, our metabolism is, is sort of on average a little bit slower than the average metabolism might have been 100 years ago, say. And because of that, the, the, the sort of standard body temperature is uh, slightly lower. So um, so that's interesting. It, it's actually something I've observed myself uh, when I've had my temperature taken, um, you know, to see if I have a fever or whatever. And if I don't have a fever, 
it's it sometimes is uh, a, a few points lower than 98.6, and I always just figured it was, you know, oh, maybe the thermometer isn't quite accurate, or it's where the temperature is being taken or whatever. But apparently, no, this is a thing, that the average body temperature it actually is lower than 98.6 by and large these days. You learn something new every day. <laughs> All right, so uh, we've we've been covering uh, entertainment news, movie and TV news more and more on the show. So uh, so that's the last segment of the day here. I'm calling this the fandom segment, uh, and some of this is follow up on the last episode. So uh, uh, the the first thing is not though. This is entirely new. Uh, a very interesting link to Ian McKellen's journal uh, or blog of sorts. Uh, he he took uh, meticulous notes wrote in a journal when he was getting ready to film The Lord of the Rings. Of course, Ian McKellen played Gandalf in those films. Uh, and uh, so, so this, this website is, is his journal of those times. And um, I started to read a bit of it, and it was quite fascinating to, to see sort of real-time on-the-ground impressions that he had of, of uh, getting cast and seeing the, the production come to life and getting to meet the other actors and all that. So if you're, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, this is a must-read for you. Now some follow-up, a uh, bunch of Witcher stuff here. Um, <laughs> so, so this is funny. Uh, Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX and, and all that. Uh, he, he is currently going by the moniker of Buff Mage right now on Twitter. So if you go look up his account on Twitter, he's not Elon Musk. He's Buff Mage. Uh, and he recently posted on Twitter, uh, he, he posted uh, some little uh, emoji of musical notes and wrote, toss a coin to your witcher. <laughs> of course, uh, that being the, the famous song that's in the TV series. Uh, and everybody's commenting on it. So apparently Elon Musk is a big Witcher fan. That's funny. Um, Netflix put out a cool little mini site. Uh, if you go to this link, you can see an interactive map of the continent, the, the world of the Witcher fantasy uh, realm. And uh, it's also cool because there's a timeline of, of where and when different episodes of the Witcher transpire. Uh, which is cool because the episodes, the, the time periods of the episodes are actually kind of out of order, which I didn't really realize at first. So it's a bit confusing the first time around watching some of the earlier episodes. And I finally realized, oh, they're, they're jumping around time periods here. This is what's going on. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but if you really want to see, you know, where different events of the episodes happened and when they happened in the timeline, uh, this site is, is truly a great resource. Also fascinating is a VFX breakdown from the company called Framestore. They did a whole bunch of the special effects for The Witcher, as well as a whole bunch of other productions. They've actually worked on some really big productions, including uh, Avengers Endgame. And so, uh, so this was a fun video uh, showing you know, just how much they did on a whole bunch of different shots to uh, generate the visual effects, whether it's sort of augmenting what the camera is taking in or um, just building entire sets from the ground up in, uh, in the computer realm. So that was a cool watch. Um, I have a link here to an Instagrammer, Alice X Zhang, who 
uh, is uh, ha- has done a whole bunch of fan art of of different shows, different properties, and um, and she is uh, doing some portraits of characters in The Witcher. Uh, her first one is Geralt of Rivia, and uh, I. I'm so in love with this portrait of Geralt that I made it my phone wallpaper. <laughs> That's how much I loved it. So, uh, so if you're a fan of The Witcher and you're trying to find some some cool fan art, uh, I think this portrait of Geralt and and you know, of course, Henry Cavill uh, playing that role, uh, this portrait is so great, so great. Uh, now some follow-up to You. I talked about this in the last episode as well, uh, the show You on Netflix. Um, there is an interview with the uh, the female star of season two, Victoria Pedretti. And uh, I thought this interview is interesting. I, I haven't gotten all the way through, but um, but the, the build interviews are, are usually uh, really quite good and, and pretty lengthy, pretty in-depth. Um, but I was struck by the beginning of the interview. Uh, Victoria seemed uh, very uh, ill at ease and, and practically uh, coming to tears. And um, some comments in the in the in the YouTube feed there uh, indicated that um, she she might have been harassed by paparazzi on her way to that interview. So she was she really started kind of off her game. Uh, and she made it clear in the interview that uh, she is not used to <laughs> to this kind of uh, uh, fame and notoriety. All of a sudden, um, she she was a relatively unknown actress until quite recently, and suddenly being in the spotlight in this role on the Netflix show and and all the attention she's gotten uh, is uh, she's she's it's a it's a it's a learning curve and um you know i really i really felt for her in this interview and, and what she was saying because i think it's so easy for us to take for granted as as fans uh, uh you know watching these amazing actors and actresses in all kinds of cool roles as you know superheroes or or just really great roles on some hot new show and and just think like you know oh, oh you know they they have the whole thing down of being in Hollywood and and going on on uh, interview circuits and and meeting fans and having people just instantly know them on the street like you know they they must be pros at all of this but uh, you know if you're if you're a relatively unknown performer and you get plucked out of obscurity and end up on one of these hot shows or some new blockbuster movie and suddenly everyone knows who you are. Uh, you know, that, that can be so disorienting, so, so challenging. Um, and she seems like a, a really sensitive, uh, you know, thoughtful, maybe perhaps not, you know, quite an extrovert sort of personality. And so I, you know, I, I can only imagine how challenging it is to, to have to deal with all this all of a sudden. Uh, but it's a great interview. I encourage you to check that out. Um, and there's one other Cool little clip here. Uh, the uh, the the male co-star of you, Penn Bagley. Uh, there is a, a, a cute little clip of him on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, uh, where um, they're talking about the show a bit, and then Stephen asks him to um, to to suddenly change his expression from charming to creepy, and <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, it was it was a, a cool little clip there. So check that out. All right, folks, 
that is the end. This that's the end of the of the segment, the fandom segment, and the end of this episode. So thank you once again for listening to the Jared White Show. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I will also be recording a bonus segment. Uh, not sure if it'll drop today. It might drop tomorrow. Uh, but uh, there will be a bonus episode on my Patreon, uh, my review of Bombshell. I saw the movie Bombshell in the theater, and I had a whole bunch of thoughts around that. And also, uh, Megan Kelly, who obviously is, is one of the main focuses of Bombshell uh, and her role at Fox News, uh, she, the, the real, real-life Megan Kelly, uh, she is apparently a YouTuber now and uh, actually brought a panel together of people that were involved in Fox and involved in the whole scandal around the, the sexual harassment and Roger Ailes and all that. Uh, she brought them together to watch Bombshell and comment on it after the fact, which was super fascinating. Uh, and in, in my opinion, sort of a must-see. If you see Bombshell, you really need to see Megyn Kelly's panel as well. So I go into all that in my bonus episode. So... Uh, so check that out at patreon.com slash essentiallifejared. Become a patron, uh, become a member there, and you'll get that bonus episode. All right, folks, that's it for today. You can go to jaredwhite.com slash podcast for this episode and other episodes and to subscribe in your podcast player of choice. And until next week, I hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful time. I'll see you next time. Bye.